0: I will grab your Bibles and open them up to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Um, Traditionally, as a church, uh, we do not do a Thanksgiving sermon. We don't tend to kind of uh, organize our preaching around uh, sort of uh, American traditions. Um, That's not because we don't support thanks or giving. Um, um, It's just that we preach those things sort of as they come up in the text. So as we're kind of going through books of the Bible, those themes will come out. Um, This year... It just happens to line up with Thanksgiving. Um, So I'll be continuing the theme that Andrew started last week, this idea of generosity flowing from gratitude. How we can be people of thanksgiving. Um, So in chapter 8, let me just give you a review of what Andrew covered last week. Uh, Paul pointed to the earnestness with which the church in Macedonia had given for the saints in Jerusalem. Right? So they're taking up a collection for the church in Jerusalem. The church in Macedonia has given um, quite a bit. Um, and so Paul makes it clear, as he's writing to the church in Corinth, that their, their motivation for giving was knowing where what they had came from. And so God's meeting all of their needs. And so any abundance should be shared with those who lack. He then referenced God providing for the Israelites in the wilderness. And whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. And in all of this, Paul is saying that God uses our generosity, fueled by an acknowledgement of God's blessing, to provide for his people. In this, then, the church should become this community that stands out because everyone is taken care of and everyone is contributing. We see this described in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 244 says all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And so this is a beautiful description of what the church is designed to be one that many people point back to uh, not only to say wow isn't that great but also to ask the question what has happened? Why doesn't the Christian community stand out as a beacon of hope and a picture of God's provision? Now, there's a number of reasons for this. We aren't going to cover them all today, but we will be focusing on what we are supposed to do with what God gives and what gets in the way of our generosity. So let's get into it. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, we're going to be starting in verse 1. It says this, Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Acacia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident." So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. So Paul begins by saying, I I don't really need to tell you this, and then he goes on to tell them that, right? I shouldn't need to say anything, because you already know this, but Paul also knows that they forget, and so he repeats himself. Now, what he's talking to them about here is about their collection for those in Jerusalem, right? The same same collection that the people in Macedonia are giving, giving to, the people in Corinth are supposed to make a contribution. And so he's encouraging them to follow through on the commitment that they have already made. And he does this with a little bit of pressure, right? He pleads with them not to humiliate him and themselves by not giving what they have already promised, Now, at first read, this sounds a little passive-aggressive, right? I mean, he's kind of like, don't embarrass me. It almost sounds like Paul is guilting them into giving. But in a few verses, we see he makes it clear he doesn't want them to contribute begrudgingly. No, what Paul is doing here is he's applying some pressure in order to help the Corinthians remember the zeal that they had before. See, evidently what happened here is that they had made a commitment. They had been excited to be part of of what was going on with the Christians in Jerusalem. But over time, their excitement has waned. Not surprisingly, they found other things to spend their money on. And so this commitment and this excitement that they had originally had has now fizzled. And so Paul isn't trying to push them in a new direction as much as kindle the fire that had previously existed. He's helping them to refocus on the decision that they had made when they were less distracted. They need help remembering what is good and what is right, which is one of the functions of the church and its leaders. Right? This is why we as a church make covenants and call one another to hold to it. We're going to be doing this today. After the service, we have a church meeting, and at that church meeting, we will be installing new covenant members into the church. Now with that, there's this list of commitments everyone who becomes part of our church agrees to. And we do this because we know that there will be a day in the future um, when when probably almost every one of you will become distracted and lose your passion. This is why we have you sign a covenant. Because what we can do is we can go back and we can point to this list, to these things that you have promised to, and say, this is what you said you would do. This is what you were excited about at one time, even if right now that's not the way you feel. It's so that we can show you and encourage you to remember what being a member of the church is. Now, one of the things we cover in our membership class, but you should all know, the elders also make a commitment to the church. We sign an elder covenant to remind one another, and there are times we bring those up at our elders' meeting and go, let's reread this and actually make sure we're doing what we have promised to do. I do the same thing in marriage counseling often. We go back to the vows. We go back to the original passion that, that basically had two people commit themselves to one another and want to be married And we use this to ask the question, what happened? How did you get from there to where you are now? Now, as I said before, that's a fair question to ask about the church as well. How did we get from what we see in Acts 2 to what we see today? And as I said, that is a long answer that I don't have entirely enough time for, but let me point out a few things that have played a role in this movement From they were all taken care of um, to the much more sort of detached reality that we see in the church today. First, we need to understand that the church is not immune to the larger societal shift towards individualism. Now, when I use the phrase individualism, you might just think sort of, um, you know, introverts or people who don't want to talk to other people. That's not what I'm talking about. No, at the core of individualism is self-reliance. It's the idea that every person should be able to take care of and support themselves without having to rely on anyone else. Now, this is a concept that is sort of so intertwined with our um, idea of freedom and rights that we don't even imagine that there might be something about that that's not good. But individualism has disconnected us from one another and led us to believe that we have no responsibility towards each other. And so when we give, when we're talking about generosity... Um, giving is me taking what is rightfully mine and transferring it to somebody else. And so giving becomes really this individual transaction rather than simply the functioning of a healthy community. We naturally read the group through the deep-seated lens of the individual. And this puts generosity and giving way down on our list of priorities. Priorities. It's a thing that we don't get to until we have a lot of other things taken care of first. Now part of this is because the way that our entire uh, society has been transformed by individualism. Because in order for people to not have to rely on other individuals, we've created a layered system of social programs to make sure that people don't ever have to turn to anybody else. Um, I would say it's reflected also in our economic system, where you can go to the store, buy all the things that you need, and you feel like, I earned all this stuff, and you're not connected to any of the people that it takes to get that food to the store, to your plate. We become entirely detached. And so the problem of, 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 say, taking care of the poor has gone from a personal responsibility to a governmental one. This is also true of building and sustaining the institutions that help guide our culture. We've delegated this to the realm of kind of politics. And so The way we view it is we manage our individual lives and we sort of expect that someone else is going to take care of the rest. Now, all that said, it's then not as simple as just like, hey, the church should do better and be more like the church that we see in Acts. We live in a very different culture than first century Corinth. And so the way that we live this out and the way we use our resources are going to look different. We should still give generously. We should still make sure we are working to fund and accomplish what the New Testament calls us to. But the, dist- the way we distribute these things and the way that we balance them out is going to vary based on the society that we exist in. I'll give you an example of what this looks like. My uncle does poverty alleviation work through the church in West Africa. Uh, One of the biggest problems in West Africa is that people can't kind of develop the collateral or save up the lump sum that they need to ever kind of start a business or even buy medicine. Um, And they don't have the ability to just go to a bank and get a loan in the same way that we do. And even if they did, most of them would not qualify for it based on their income. And so what he has done is he's helped churches to sort of function like banks, so the church is actually set up this way where everyone contributes and everyone can withdraw, and, and, and basically it has helped these churches to become the center of their communities because the people can actually do things that they would not be able to do without the church functioning in this way. This is a creative way to apply the principles of Acts 2 to a society that is both different from us and different from first century Corinth. I'll give you another example that we participate with, Family Promise. Um, There's a lot of people out there who are like, man, churches should just open up and let homeless people sleep in the churches. Okay, the problem is zoning. The problem is that's actually not allowed based on how cities are set up. You can't just set your church up as a shelter. But what you can do is set your church up as a temporary shelter, right? And so what Family Promise has figured out is there's a way, as long as you're moving families from one church to another, to use the churches as shelters that are supporting the homeless. And so this is one of the reasons why we participate with them. They have created a a solution to a problem, a very creative way to say, how can we work in a system that kind of prevents us from doing some other things? point is, as an individualistic culture, our money is going to be balanced differently than it would in a communal culture. And the needs are different. it It just works differently. And so in order for us to make sure that our giving is doing what God intends, let's spend a minute looking at what the money given to the church is meant to cover. Because the collection that Paul is taking here is not just for the poor in Jerusalem, it's for the ministry in Jerusalem. And there are different aspects of ministry that Paul has called the church to give to. The first one is supporting the pastors. Let's just get this one out of the way right away. Paul tells Timothy, you should not muzzle the ox while it's treading the grain and the laborer deserves his wages, which all seems a bit obscure, but but he's a bit more straightforward with the Galatians. This is what he says in Galatians 6, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. The pastor who gives their life to the training and health of the church should be supported by the church they lead. Now, what's not stated here directly by Paul, but it definitely goes with this, is all of the costs that are associated with the ministry of the word. In our current context, that includes building, uh, ministry fees, stipend staff, insurance, utilities, internet. There's a lot of things that go into how the church functions. And the church shares the cost of being the church. Bills need to be paid, and it is the giving of the church that pays them. And let me just say it as an aside, this blows the mind of people outside of the church. Right? We rented to a school next door, and they would do all of these fundraisers, and they were like, we noticed something about you guys. You guys never do fundraisers. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And they were like, how do you pay for everything? And I was like, oh, the people of the church give. And they were like, like, we've got, we've got we, you know, having, you have to pay to have your kids there. We've got this fundraiser, buy the wreath, you know, all this stuff. Do people just give you money? Are your sermons that good? No, no. <laughs> right? The people of the church understand that in order for the church to function, somebody has to pay the bills, and the church shares that load. All right, so that's the first one. Second thing that Paul calls the church to give to is the sending of missionaries. Right, The Great Commission commands God's people to go, and the church should be involved in the sending of workers out into the mission field. But the church is not just a sending agent. We shouldn't just send people and go, good luck. Right? No, we should support the work of the missionaries we sent. We see Paul commending churches for doing this, including some, like the church in Philippi, who support him directly. This is what he says in Philippians 1, 3-5. He says, I thank God in all my remembrances of you always in prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He goes on to point out that part of the support that they have given to him from the first day until now is financial. Now, Paul has been on mission at this point for 10 years And so the church in Philippi has been funding, at least in some part, his missionary work for a decade. And so this is how the church should think about it. If they send a person out, they are responsible to support them spiritually, emotionally, and financially. That's part of the work of the church. The third thing the church is called to give to is the care for the poor, or sorry, care for those in need. I think we see that pretty clearly in Matthew 25, Jesus makes a statement about what we do for the least of these and uses it to divide those who are his from those who are not. Now, his point is not that you buy your way into heaven through good works. He is not saying that you better go out and do something or else you're not going to make it. But what he's saying that is, if you have the gift of salvation, if you understand what you have been given, you will be a person who shares what you have. And so the people of the church are called to give, and that giving is to be used for the ministry of the word, to support missions, and to take care of those in need. That is where the church's money should go. And the way that that money is dispersed is is going to depend on sort of what are some of the fixed costs that have to be paid, and what are some of the things where you can be a little bit more free and giving. Now as Paul writes this letter to Corinth, he is operating from financial constraints, Understand this, ministry always operates with financial constraints. Just like us, the only thing that can, can expand or limit the ministry is generosity. If you give more, there is more that can be done. If Corinth goes back on their original commitment, the church in Jerusalem is going to have to pay their teachers less, stop supporting some missionaries, Or care for less of the poor. Because there's only so much they have to work with. It's a budget. If they don't have the money to spend, they can't spend it. And so when Paul talks about money, he doesn't think of it as dollars. He's not thinking about it as accumulating wealth. He's thinking of it as as potential gospel work. And so we see this in the way that he talks to the people about their giving. This is what he says in verse 7. He says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now this language of sowing and reaping is all over the Bible, uh, particularly in the wisdom sections of literature. Uh, The metaphor um, of sowing and reaping is a farming one. It's the idea if you plant very few seeds, you're going to yield less than someone who plants a lot of seeds. Makes sense. The language of sowing and reaping then is often used by sort of televangelists and others who who will promise that if you give your money to them, if you sow a seed, God will repay you bountifully in money and blessings. And so what we see being done there is they're taking the language of 2 Corinthians, but they're pulling it out of context. Because what Paul is talking about here is not some promise of financial benefit on behalf of the giver, but of sowing for the kingdom of God. He's talking about a harvest of righteousness. Now in a few verses, we will see that there is grace that comes from giving. But if we limit this to material gain, we are going to be continually frustrated by the outcomes. If you're constantly looking at, how much have I given? And have I gotten that much in return? Is this a good financial use of my my money? We're going to end up holding God to an expectation that he never promised us. See, sowing and reaping is not about using God to add to your material wealth. It's about using temporary resources for his eternal plan. This is about not missing out on an opportunity to use what has been given to you to produce God's good in the world. So as we sow to God, we need to set aside a lot of the sort of limited transactional ideas that we have around the concept of money. I remember a conversation I had with a guy early on in the church. Um, he came to me and asked me, how much do I need to give to assure that God's promised blessings will be given to me? How much do I have to, be, to give to be seen as generous biblically? Now his question to me in some ways was, was reminiscent of the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, uh, the man who comes to Jesus and asks, what must I do to possess eternal life? Really, the question being asked is, is how can I make God bless me? How can I appease him or give to him enough that he has to give to me in return? And so I knew I had to be careful, because I did not want to give this guy an answer that led him to trust in in his ability to pay God off. And so what I said to him is simply this, this isn't the right question. The right question is, how much do I appreciate what God has given me? And how much do I want to participate in his work of reconciliation? I thought that was a really good answer. <laughs> he didn't buy it. Um, he did not like my answer. He actually then quoted back to me a, a well-known megachurch pastor who had boiled it down to a percentage. Um, you know, kind of a, if you give this much, that's exactly what God is asking of you. And then he accused me of not being bold and confident enough to give a definitive answer like that guy had. Um, But at the end of the day, here's here's what it is. I want to encourage people to give. I want to provide some guidance on how much would be appropriate. But I also don't want to make people give for the wrong reasons. I don't think it's that helpful to kind of find ways to get money out of people's pockets if they're not doing it from the right place. And I'm not alone in this. Paul shares the same concern. We see it here in verse 8 And so what Paul does here is he puts the act of giving to God into the larger picture of what it means to be a mature Christian. And he does it by quoting Psalm 112 here. This is actually from the the chapter that I read for the reading of the law. Um, That 10-verse psalm is about the person who fears God and organizes their life around living for his kingdom. And it places generosity among the many other attributes and actions that make up this character. And so the distribution of money, the giving to the church, is simply the way that a person who fears God operates in regards to their material possessions. All that they have been given is from God, to use for his glory and to invest in his kingdom. And so the idea of giving is not some disconnected command. This is how a person who understands the gospel treats their money. And this psalm makes it clear that when you give to God, you are not assured that everything will go well. You may be gracious, merciful, and righteous, giving of your first fruits. And you're still going to have things go wrong. You may still struggle financially. Giving to God does not keep us from difficulty. But what the psalm tells us is it does weaken the bad news. Right? So it says, he is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. It is this trust in the good work of the Lord that allows us to give of what we have. Sacrificing potential vacations and comfort and toys and experiences for something that we now see as more valuable. And so what Paul wants the Corinthians to get, and what I hope we can see, is that being a cheerful giver is not about being happy about what we give up, but instead being excited about what we get to participate in. And so as you decide in your heart what you will give, you should do it with a focus on stewardship. How can you use what God has given you to do the work of his kingdom? And so a Christian should give cheerfully because they're not looking at the money in their hand, but at the face of their Savior. This is an act of thanks to God, both for what he has done in rescuing us, what he is doing in our lives right now, And what he promises to do in the future, carrying us to glory. Where we will have every need met completely without any bad news. Until we get there, we should continue to do our part in investing in thanksgiving. Which is how Paul ends this section. Verse 10, he says this. He says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will provide thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from the confession. So the car, comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. This is where Paul lays out sort of the benefits of giving, of being thankful. Paul lays out three ways in which you will be blessed through giving. The first one he says is that God will increase the harvest of your righteousness Uh, This is the promise that if you are giving money to God, it is never wasted. Now, we definitely want to make sure that we're investing uh, in good places, that we're not giving to places that are misusing funds or spending frivolously. I say this because I know some of you have previously given to churches and organizations that you trusted, only to find out that they were not above board. But this is actually a wonderful comfort, it's a balm to that wound. In the same way that our work is never in vain, even when it doesn't produce the fruit that we can see, what this is saying is that giving that is done from a cheerful heart for the sake of God's glory will always be used to increase the harvest of righteousness. You're never wasting your money even when you find out later it didn't go to the best place. Because the work that God is doing is not just out there where the money goes. It's here. It's here. Trusting in the sovereignty of the God who supplies seed to the sower allows us to set aside our anxiety on the things that we can't control. And we don't have to, again, spend all of this time lamenting on the mistakes that we have made. Second thing it tells us is that you will be enriched enriched in every way to be generous. Generous. Something that I have noticed over time as a pastor is that there are people who give nothing or very little, and it's basically a fool's errand to try to get any money from them. Again, not that I'm going around trying to pry money from them, but um, there are people who do not give and never will. There are people who, who already give a lot, and honestly, they're usually the first ones to step forward to give more. I'm saying this right now. The people who are already generous are the ones who are hearing this and going, I need to think about how much I give. And there's some of you going, "Ah, this isn't for me. He's talking about money. It isn't as simple as the people who have give. It's actually that the people who are generous are further enriched to give more. Right When you give, when you actually see, hey, I put some money out there and I'm actually okay without it, it makes you more and more generous. Tell a quick story. There was a family at a previous church that I went to. Um, they, they were double income. They, they had plenty of money. They had, you know, kind of the man room and the, the toys and they had it all, um, but they were always like barely getting by. Um, And they didn't give anything to the church and they always said we don't have anything like we it's basically just enough to kind of support our life Um, And some things happened Um, He lost his job. They were all of a sudden on on uh, partial income from what they had before And at that time period they also started giving to the church And I remember talking to them a couple like about a year after that and they were like I don't know what happened like we go back to the numbers and it doesn't make any sense Um, but somehow we actually have more money left over. We're giving away more money now that we're bringing in far less than we were before. And again, for them, they didn't feel like, oh, and we've lost this and we've lost this. They actually had shifted their priorities, right? All of a sudden, what they cared about changed and, and the money just ended up getting spent differently. Our priorities, as our priorities continue to shift and have our, ne- our needs and our wants shrink, It creates more margin to invest in the kingdom. Your ability to give grows with consistent generosity. It's really hard to start giving to anything. But it's pretty amazing once you do, I always say this about service as well, it's pretty amazing once you do how much easier it is to take the next step and the next step and the step after that. God will enrich you in every way to be generous. The third thing that Paul says here is they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel. Um, Your giving then is a witness to what you truly value and it helps other people to be thankful and give as well. Right. So this is how it works. Um, You recognize what God has given to you and you're thankful. You give as a response to that. Those who see you give and those who receive from you are thankful for your thanksgiving. And this encourages them to then go and be generous. And in giving, then, we are assured that our giving will increase the harvest of righteousness. We are promised that in it we will be sanctified and enriched to be more generous. And that we will be encouraging others to invest in God's work. That's That's the pragmatic bonuses of it. But here's the thing. It all starts with gratitude. Any giving that is is only motivated by what it will accomplish will be limited by results that we can see. I will give as long as I can see how it's working, and as soon as I don't see it working, I stop giving. But to trust in God is to give to Him without assurance, it's to trust Him based on who He is. And who He is has been revealed to us in Scripture, it has been shown to us in blessing after blessing in our own lives. And it's shown most clearly to us at the cross. Jesus on the cross is the reminder that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We have a God who gives us what we need at great cost to himself. And so whenever we talk about giving or generosity, we should always use the term thanksgiving. Right? We give out of thanks. And every week when we come together here, we give. Right? These bowls on the table up front. Some people call them urns, but that always sounds really weird. Um, sorry. That's for you to, to come and, and, and give back to God to put your giving in. Now, I know some of you mail it directly to us. Some of you give online. Um, but I want you to know the reason why we put these up front is because we want your giving to be connected to your thanks. We want you to recognize I'm coming to receive from God, and as I do, I'm coming to give back to Him. And so, as you come up to receive communion, to remember the sacrifice of Jesus, and and to partake in His ongoing grace, you respond with thanksgiving. So, as you come forward for the elements today, please reflect on how these two are related, how your thanks fuels your giving. And then spend some time this week asking yourself whether or not your approach to giving is making you a cheerful giver. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for all that you have given to us. Everything that we have is yours and has been, has been given to us to use for your glory. And yet so often we see it as ours to be used for whatever we want to use it for. God, I pray that you would help us to to see how we are to to steward the gifts that you have given. Help us to to see the difference between what we need and what we want. Help us to see the opportunities all around us, the people who, who need. God, help us to see that much of what we have has been given to us to give away. God, help us to break free from the negative aspects of this individual culture that we live in. Help us to see ourselves as a community. Help us to see ourselves as part of a a functioning whole. And God, help us to see our money as simply one tool that you have given us to be faithful. We thank you so much for all that you do. We thank you so much for the many things you have given to us to enjoy. You are so good to us. Help us to respond appropriately. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.